Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Hello, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 270. And this past weekend, I was back on the Eastern Shore in Maryland in Chestertown. It was a beautiful weekend where I got to go to Lockbriar Farms. I think in this episode, I might have called it Sweetbriar. I don't know why that's in my head. I think that's a place in New York. But I went to Lockbriar Farms and I met Jacqueline, who runs their ice cream operation there. It's just so, 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 so good. And I'm writing about them for Edible Del Marva. I also went to Zelda's, where I'm going to hopefully be writing about the speakeasy there and writing about Jeff, who runs that place. But I was also there to record a part two episode with Mark Castelli. Mark is a painter and a writer and a drawer and a photographer. He's very well known in that area for painting the watermen, the baymen, the crabbers, the oystermen. If you recall, and probably if you don't recall, you haven't listened to our first episode. So if not, hit pause on this right now and go back and listen to our first one. Uh, You can listen to this as a standalone, but that'll provide some of the context that we refer back to without delving too deep into it in this one. But you may recall that he doesn't do a whole lot of interviews. And so I felt really fortunate to be able to meet him the first time. And I got a lot of really good feedback. You know, in town, people are like, whoa, you got Mark? How'd you do that? And so not only am I excited to, to be able to sit down with him again and to, to give more stories to you all, but I'm really happy that I know him now and I can call him a friend. And we shoot each other emails back and forth about the books that we're reading and what's going on in our lives and the work that we're doing. So yeah, I'm really fortunate. Uh, This is another really good one. There's a lot of information in here. With episodes like this, I recommend sitting down with a notepad or, I don't know, your open computer or something like that and writing down notes on all the Easter eggs because we talk about authors and drop some quotes and things like that. And maybe you'll discover, you know, new books, new authors, new artists, through our conversation. I hope you do, because those are the podcasts that I like to listen to the best. I'll have a link in the player for Mark's website, and I'll probably put one for the Missoni Gallery in there where he's going to have a show. And there's also always a link to my stuff and to my Patreon account. Patreon is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly, and I've got cool kickbacks like shirts and stickers and zines and the writing that I'm doing. Sometimes it's stuff from around the world and postcards. So if you're able to do that, that's awesome. If not, word of mouth really helps out. So tell a friend if you're into this episode, if you're into other episodes, any episode, tell somebody. All right, I'm going to stop blabbing. Enjoy this conversation with Mark Castelli. I don't care, sit right there in your chair, sipping on pink lemonade in the shade. The Chesapeake Bay. Well, first I want to thank you. Oh. Uh, you're, far, you're part of like uh, an illustrious few here who have done <laughs> more than one episode. Um, so that means that I didn't horrify you to the point that you never want to come back. So No, you didn't horrify <laughs> me, nor did you piss me off. Okay. Well, <laughs> in this day and age, at my age, that's a pretty good thing for somebody. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep that streak going uh, <laughs> with this one, too. I think you're all right. I think you're okay. 
Well, you know, um, you you're really revered around here. Like, I've gotten a lot of feedback about it. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I I did not know how to put it out there to people that I know, so I just pretty much just two or three people that I knew that might be interested, and I just and left it at that. Uh, I'm not real big on self-promoting, so people find it, that's good. And I'm glad uh, people have been finding it. So, Yeah, I met, um, I met Carla for the first time after we recorded. Oh. And she was really happy with it as well. And that makes me happy. Like, if, if the community is happy, that gives me a lot of joy. Well, yeah, Carla's a good part of the community, but there are people that you rub the wrong way. Mm. <laughs> and sometimes I take great delight in that. <laughs> part of doing a... a a part two for me that, that's kind of difficult is it's similar when I write. Like in the editing process, I'm listening to the product or when I'm writing, obviously you're, you're going, you're pouring over the edits. But once it's done, I'm like kind of horrified and I can't, I can't listen to these. I honestly like when, when one of my articles is published, I can't read it. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's two hours of, of good stuff that we talked about and I'm, I'm hoping I don't repeat any of that. But I was wondering, and we were actually just starting to chat about this a little bit. When you have a finished product and it's out there and, and it's at a show and people are looking at it, like what's going through your head? <laughs> have you sighed? That, no, that, that's an interesting question because and you think about the guys back at the, in the 40s and the 50s who started doing abstract expressionism. I mean, how just remarkably brave they were to put these things out there. It's just like laying your wrists out there for the ignorant to slash away at or sand at or grind on. Um, in my case, it's not quite the same situation of belief, disbelief. You stand in front of abstracts and people go, well, my kid can do that. I said, well, probably he could copy that, but no, he can't do that because he didn't come up with the idea mm. and he wasn't free enough to do it yet. As children, they are, but we start constraining them and whatnot. So my work, people know pretty much what they're looking at. Um, so much of my work is caught up in the story that's the background to the piece that surrounds the piece, not necessarily the background, but um, I think people like to know a lot more about the piece than just what the piece is. Now, if they see a piece that speaks to them and they don't know why, they might come and ask me why they respond to it and I can't tell them. You know, it's, it's something inside of you that escaped the roof of your brain said, I like this. And, and you responded to it. And then now you're looking for confirmation from the roof of your brain for something that has no words. Mm. So a lot of times I just kind of sit there and politely listen. Um, I might confirm things that they're saying. Sometimes people are probably reading far more into it than I ever did. Um, I could see why they would or how they would, but uh, I don't frustrate them for that. Once the piece is out there, it's on its own. It's got to live on its own and people got to it's up to them. Mm. It's up to them. I don't, very rarely do I infringe on somebody's opinion. There was a person at the show last October who came up the gallery and she looked around and goes, well, these all look like paint by numbers. Ooh. Yeah. 
And I said, what? <laughs> and she looked at me and, and I said, uh, God, I tried really hard to erase all the numbers. <laughs> you know, just trying to level the conversation a little bit. And uh, <laughs> she proceeded to dig herself a huge hole from there. And I just let it go at that. Uh, but you never know. Um, I, I think about the, the psychology of interviewers a lot because I'm, I'm kind of that, I guess. Uh, and one thing I, I used to see Anthony Bourdain grapple with as he got closer to the end of his life was he would ask other people uh, kind of about reality and about his role in crafting reality. So he would go somewhere and we would all see the world through his experience and not just his experience, but his storytelling of that place. You work with a lot of mediums. You write, you paint, you draw, you take pictures. Do you ever think about that and sort of like your role in creating a reality that other people are viewing through your eyes? Never quite put that all together in that point of view or that question. Well, I do. It's it's like I like I'd said earlier, and I probably said the last time we talked. I get to live what I paint, for the most part. I don't race cars, though I love to paint racing cars, and I don't ride horses, and I dearly enjoy photographing and painting them. But there is this relationship I have visually with those two subjects that I really enjoy. But um, racing sailboats, uh, working on the water, those things I get to do, and I get to and I live them. How do I explain to people on as many levels as possible my fascination with those four subjects, but mm. the two that I get to live? Um, and I'm not looking to justify what I do because I don't. Uh, if the minute you're explaining, you're losing. Period. Mm. So, um, like a comedian. Yeah, yeah. You're well. It's like Wyeth, who never taught. And when asked why, he said. It's because you have to put things into concepts that people can ha put a handle on and understand with. And if you teach long enough, you limit yourself to those concepts and not to the freedom that you've been enjoying as an artist. Mm. So he never taught. And I quit teaching for that reason because I just kind of found myself starting paintings out like I would in a class instead of just jumping in with both feet and breaking the rules or, or starting out with something that I'd never done before. So I, my father was a teacher, as was my mother. Um, my father, I thought, was a great teacher. Anything that you could use to seat in your students or the viewer's mind or the people to come to a, a slideshow, anything that you can have filter and find some crack to settle in that they walk away with, is legitimate. Hmm. Photograph, writing, painting, drawing, an experience, a story. Because um, so few people... Just a story from something today. Working with the museum on Tillman, we're doing a display about clamming. Now, clamming in the Chesapeake is a remarkably controversial subject. Um, you got the green shirts and you got the watermen. You got... Save the Bears, and you got the Watermen, and you've got 
a whole array, our, our enemies are legion, so to speak. But they don't, but what they put out there for the public to understand, and it's the very same public that they depend on for their money, their membership, their dues, that membership doesn't understand, nor does the readership in a magazine understand what's being put out there. How many ways can you teach that, the truth of it all, mm. their point of view and the point of view of the watermen and the industry and the marketing that's all involved? There's so many ways to do this. So all those things that you mentioned, drawing, painting, photography, writing, talking, they're all part of my revealing in a third and fourth hand way to people a way of life a group of people who are usually put upon in the wrong way in the medium so how do you how do you how do you teach that other people that these are human beings mm. they have families they have frailties they have faults they have strengths they have incredible generosities um, just just Think of them as people. And when you sit down to eat crab or you sit down to eat fish or you sit down to eat oysters, they didn't put themselves on that plate by themselves. You know, the watermen did that. Used to be a great bumper sticker. Got seafood? Thank a waterman. You know, it's, it's a, and it's a huge part of our economy. It's a gigantic part of our economy. So all of that. You know, somebody asked me a question about, well, how was the oyster season? Well, this was the best oyster season we've had in 35 years. 35 years, 35 years of, oh, my God, the bay is, fla is failing. We're down to 1% of oysters. Oh, we're losing 80% of oyster bottom. We're, what a bunch of crap. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Can you pinpoint why this season was, like, so fruitful? Mother Nature was very kind to us. Mm. In addition to the fact that, that we, the, we, I say, the industry did a lot of planting yeah. They would buy seed on shell and go plant that on their bars. Um, did a lot of bar cleaning, bringing up shell through the water column and putting it back over, the rinsing of it. So then when there is a natural recruitment like there is south of Eastern Bay all the way to the end of the bay, you've got prime conditions. You've got a prime substrate, which is shell, better than rock or any of the other garbage that they're trying to get people to use. Um, so Mother Nature... Along with, you cannot micromanage nature. And that is the problem with all the green beans and the environmentalists and the Bay Foundation and shore rivers. They want to micromanage it. And you can't because she's going to turn around and slap you down mm. pretty damn quick. Especially the cruelest god is the god of the counted chicken. Period. <laughs> Think about it, you know. So, Waterman, I, I oystered a lot this year. And it was an incredible season because we were still getting our limit at the end of the season. At the end of the season. Normally, at the end of the season, we're scrambling for five or six bushels and we're having to measure every damn one of them because they're, so, they're just right on that three-inch limit. Mm. Well, this year, we didn't have to do a whole lot of measuring. And this year, we got our limits all the way up to the last day of the season. It's, it's pretty remarkable. For me, in my limited exposure, only 27 years of doing this, and listening to the old guys just talking that this is, it's almost fun. Almost fun, because you're not just measuring everything and chipping everything. Um, you know, you look at them, it's big enough, it's going in, it's going in. It's, uh, 
It was pleasant. The best part of all of this, back to the cruelest God, um, spat, little baby oysters. We were chipping spat all year long, just chipping off baby oysters and they're going back over. Sometimes the color board was two or three inches deep in spat that we had chipped off and going back overboard. And they'll become full. Oh, yeah. 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 If Mother Nature's kind to us. You know? Yeah, I was wondering if there's any way to, you know, project what next season would be. Or Depends on how much water we get this year, how much mm-hmm. rain we get, and depends on temperatures. And they, they'd go to snot in April to, like, August. Um, so that's when they're reproducing. Hmm. And I say go to snot because if you've ever shucked an oyster that's reproducing, it's not very pretty. Really? <laughs> no, yeah. It's like viscous. It's not very, yeah, they're, they're just not appetizing. Oh. So it's, um, you know, if we get the right amount of fresh water and the right temperatures and no more anoxic anaerobic events, uh, it all depends on Mother Nature. Now you look out what's going on in the Pacific, I'm not out in the Southwest right now. And in Colorado, they've had droughts and they've had cold temperatures with no humidity where there's fires in neighborhoods. There's fires in urban areas like Boulder, Colorado. Mm. Things are changing, you know. So, yeah, we're dependent on Mother Nature and we're doing the best we can by planting and bar cleaning and, you know, see what happens. You mentioned to me, uh, if I'm mispronouncing it, I apologize, it's Comorants. Cormorants, cormorants, cormorants. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're a predator for oysters. No, no, no. They're they're predators for bait fish. For fish, okay. Yeah, little fish, and and they have. I was fishing with a family two weeks ago, and there were a lot of cormorants, and there was a lot of each pound that it almost looks like a food bank for Whoa. cormorants and osprey and and blue herons. But I mean, we've we've modified their behavior. They know where to look for fish without having to hunt for it. And cormorants have exploded in population in the last 30 years or so. I mean, literally exploded. They're protected, right? They are protected um, from a migratory um, bird act back in the the 40s and 50s. The 70s, there were hardly any here. I think there was the the mating pair was like below 100. It was like 45 or 50 pair. Mm. Now it's well over two, 300 mating pairs, and there's several thousand cormorants in the bay now. It's insane. So you go to your pound net and you want to have bait fish, manhaden, or mudshed. And when they fly away, when 40 or 50 of them fly away, you're going, all right, let's see what's in there. So now you have three invasive species to deal with. I won't say cormorants are invasive, but they came back. It's a success story that's gotten wildly out of control, mm. like uh, white-tailed deer. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And maybe rockfish at certain certain times in our history. So you've got snakeheads, you've got blue cats, which are huge right now. I mean, they are big. Uh, snakeheads eat almost everything that they can get around. Blue cats will eat all kinds of stuff. And cormorants, who are just really hitting the commercial fishery hard. Now, in other states, like down in the southeast and in the Midwest, 
they've actually gone to the federal government and gotten permits to knock the numbers down. Mm. Two ways you can do that. One of them strikes me as kind of ludicrous. You had a brush and a bottle of Wesson oil and you just smear the egg so the, the chick suffocates in the shell. Or you shoot the damn things. Um, and they actually have numbers that they're allowed to thin out to knock the numbers down because uh, aquaculture took huge hits from these birds. So they have become a, a major, I will say, they're not invasive, but they are very predatory, and there are lots of them out there. Okay, then I have a question for you that I'm terrible at being succinct, and this is going <laughs> to be a really big question, uh, with a small one at the beginning. Have you read Edward Abbey? No. Okay. Um, you asked me this, I think, in an in email. email. Damn, yeah. I should have brought a book. I, I can send you one. Um, well, you just give me the title. I got a great bookstore here in town. Yes, you do. Yes. Uh, probably Desert Solitary is his most well-known. Okay. Um, but he's he's from New Mexico, and he was a proponent of public lands. But And I hope I'm doing him justice, but he wasn't a proponent necessarily of national parks. I understand the difference. Yeah. Ranchers okay. and wolves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, especially when you are paving over a lot of land just to get people into the, you know, the cool looking parts of the parks. So I would say that he was not a proponent of government stepping in and telling you really anything that you should be able to do as you, as it relates to nature. And in some ways I agree and in some ways I'm not sure because you mentioned white-tailed deer White-tailed, the white-tailed deer population has exploded. That's going to lead to overgrazing. It's going to lead to more car accidents. Um, Lyme disease. Lyme disease, exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they should be hunted and people should be allowed to hunt them. But if, unless I'm misunderstanding, part of that population boom is because things like wolves have been overhunted and then therefore potentially there needs to be some regulation. Uh, where do you fall in that as it relates to the Chesapeake Bay? That's a good question. Um, a lot of watermen, like the people I was fishing with a couple of weeks ago, they perceive um, sport fishermen and save the bears and the river keepers as having an attitude that says we live in their world, mm. the world of the fish and the birds and the deer and everything, without really thinking about the fact that when you say we live in their world, how do we, where does that fit into that equation? Because normally it is, for those groups, we don't fit into that equation. It's nature first. Well, we screwed it up so badly just by being who we are and where we are and how many hundreds of years we've been doing this. Thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. I talked about how we've modified feeding habits with pound nets. Mm. Think about pound nets haven't been around here for, they've only been around since the early 1900s. And we've now got birds who come to the pound nets because that's where they can eat. You've got osprey that want to Pick their, they put their nests on the poles right there. I mean, step out the front door of your nest and go, huh, I get white perch for breakfast this morning. I mean, how easy is that? 
the opposite of, to that is they live in our world, which is this Judeo-Christian idea of the earth is here for us to do with what we want, which is totally wrong. I don't believe in that. Um, somewhere in all of that, and I think the Native Americans, the first people, found a way to navigate this. But they also enjoyed the fact that there was a hell of a lot more earth and a hell of a lot more animals out there for a small population of people that could roam around and make a little dent here and a little dent there. We have to find a balance, mm. and it's important. We have to find a balance that respects us as human beings and respects us and our needs, and we also have to find one that respects water. Mm. And there's a, for instance, Talbot County, and I have no idea why the commissioners, not all the commissioners, if they go the way it seems, they're going to make a horrible decision there to allow a gigantic housing development to go in right just outside a trap. I mean, there are aerial photographs of the creeks with fecal matter floating in them because the infrastructure there can't handle the houses that are there. Now they want to dump 200-plus residences there with a minimum of improvement in, in infrastructure, but the money, mm. you know, and money will always screw it up. It will always screw it up. There's so many greedy people in this world, greedy developers. I, if you want to, want to really start to clean up how we fit in and how we can interface, let's look at how we develop. And like Tom Horton said many years ago, if you want to clean up the bay, you want to save the bay, move away. There's that extreme. Mm. So, and, and I ain't moving away. I love living here. And I... The seafood industry here is so inextricably interwoven with the ecology and the environment. These are the, as Tom Horton has said, these are the canaries in the coal mine. You know, don't, if you're a riverkeeper, don't motor past these guys at work. Get to know them and ask what they're seeing. But there's that divide. There's that book by Dobbs, I think I mentioned it the last time, called The Great Gulf. Mm. He's writing about the Gulf of Maine. But he's also writing about the gulf between empirical knowledge and, and scientific knowledge. Uh, and, and in the book, he finds, he starts to give these examples of how lobstermen and fishermen in Maine came to the table with the scientists and the biologists and environmentalists, environmentalists and they came to certain solutions. It doesn't happen very often, and we still got, you know, we have a one-party system in Maryland, a governmental system, it's that we have a House and a Senate dominated by Democrats, so save the bay. Mm. <laughs> yeah. There used to be hearings where a waterman, a friend of mine, he would come to these hearings and, and ask. It was about Manhattan, too, which is something cormorants love to eat. It's, a, it's also called bunker and buggies. They're called buggies because they have a parasite that lives in their mouth. It's a very nice symbiotic relationship. Every now and then, one will cough uh, one of these parasites up out on the on the board. And, if you, and if you go Google uh, Vincent Price movie called The Tingler, that's that's <laughs> oh, what, no. it's a horror movie from the fifties. <laughs> that's about what these parasites look like. But <sighs> but they they live with each other. Mm. They have a very symbiotic relationship. We're at this hearing because all of a sudden. Down Bay, there starts to be these issues about people harvesting, and we're talking big companies harvesting Manhattan for a variety of things. Um, 
and how people are upset, think maybe they're taking too many, they're impacting the sustainability of the species, all of this. Well, they also wanted to throw severe limits on watermen in the Chesapeake Bay. The numbers that we caught compared to these bigger fisheries, we don't have the market that they do. They have these big, huge markets for for Manhattan. Well, we're at this hearing and we're listening to all these people talking about putting limits on what we could catch and when we could catch. And this waterman stood up and goes, okay, all right. What are your feelings about my just selling my house and my boat and all of my gear and buying a double wide and coming to your house and parking it on your front yard and using your showers and your bathrooms and your kitchens? Because that's what you're going to do to me if you keep this up. You're going to put me out of work and you're not giving me any alternatives. So I'm going to come and live with you. And it's definitely quiet in there. For a few, and then everybody goes, oh, oh, oh that's, 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 that's not going to happen. It's like, Pff. but that is, that is the frame of mind. And he said also, boys, this is our Alamo. We're going to make sure those sons of bitches know they've been in a hell of a fight. I think a lot about how, well, I took a couple like philosophy courses, like very basic philosophy courses in college in my first few years, which would now be like 16 years ago. So probably a lot of that knowledge has been lost in the ether of like my strange mind. But I remember- It'll come and haunt you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll wake up at two o'clock in the morning and go, oh shit. <laughs> in absolute terror. Um but yeah, I remember like the whole the, the whole concept of the social contract and we're all sort of collectively giving up some of our own sovereignty and autonomy for this thing that will protect us. Um, and, you know, this goes all the way back to Greek philosophers and we still haven't figured it out. Oh no. It's incredible. <laughs> but, but 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 you know what we have here in this country? We're only 240 years mm. old. Right, we just had our first real serious brush with fascists, mm. President Trump. Just, and I don't care who heard that. We just had our first real serious brush with that, but we're now dealing with the repercussions because of the insidious nature of of how they chose to uh, interject themselves in our lives. And that's not going anywhere like that no, is, oh no. that that movement's very popular across the this, world this next elections well no it, you're right there i mean wonderful that poland's taking in all these refugees i think it's absolutely remarkable but poland at the same time was starting to have a certain amount of they were going farther right hungary has gone farther right mm-hmm. india has gone farther right i mean all, all so it's i think his people are afraid and I, to be honest with you, there are issues that they're afraid of that they don't even know yet. They hear about things like climate change, you know, and I have grandchildren, <laughs> you know, and it, it, it haunts me. Go back to development, you know, people that want to develop and, and bring in more people to live here. Well, how do you lessen that impact? Hmm. Same waterman again. Very creative. He he wrote a poem one time about having a panda bear coat. (laughs) 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 Kind of puts you where his mindset is about the World Wildlife Federation and all all of these people. But he said, if 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 you truly want to live here on the water, and he's pointing at a specific group of people that could afford to live on the water. Well, there's three things that you need to do: stop growing grass, 
Start growing things that grow naturally along the river. Get rid of your asphalt driveway. Put in like sand or gravel or something that lets the water permeate into the soil and purify on its way back to that river or that water that you're living on. And the other one was do away with your outhouses and your septic tanks. Go get a big board and shit on that. Let it dry and scrape it off into your plants that you're growing. I mean, he said this at a hearing (laughs) in the legislature. And to be honest with you, it goes back to Tom Horton's comment about you want to save the bay, move away. Or what compromises are you willing to make to live here? Mm. So it's, and this goes all the way back to your earlier question about do we live here or do we live in their world or do they live in our world? And if we harvest them to feed people, then all of a sudden there's this interface that we have to deal with. Can't just say, like Mr. Francho has said, I'm going to do away with a public oyster fishery and we're going to save the bay with aquaculture. (laughs) Well, over 500,000 bushels were harvested by the public fishery this year. Mm. You put that up against whatever aquaculture does in a a year, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. It's, it's, you're playing to a group of people who are being fed information by specific siloed information, zones of comfortable shared opinions. The biggest example is 50 gallons a day. I think we talked about this the last time. Yeah, I know we were definitely talking about it a, a bit more intensely before we recorded, but yeah, I think we, we talked about it a bit. I went to the websites to see if they've corrected it because... It's now anywhere between six and a half to 12 and a half. So let's just say an average of 10 gallons a day in average conditions that an oyster can filter. Not the 50 that for years have been bandied about, then was recently reduced to 30. And then with some serious work in the lab, dropped down to six and a half and 12 and a half. You go to all these websites for all these Save the Bay groups, they still got 50 gallons a day out there. One of them, when asked, are you going to change your website? Oh, no. Why? We have to energize our membership. The sky is falling. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, how do you find this interface between us living in the animals' worlds and the environment and the environment living in our world if you can't put the information out there and be honest about it? I'm, I'm making connections in my head to a couple things. Yeah, I can things. see the gears yeah. going. Um, There's no smoke coming out of your ears yet. <laughs> well, I think it is, it, is, it is incredibly difficult nowadays to parcel out correct information, oh, God, truth. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you read something like that and you think, okay, well, this, this group has the best interest of, of the Bay at heart um, and probably even believe in the information that they're putting out um but it still may not be true and it kind of goes back to like as the storyteller and yeah if you're putting out a news article you're a storyteller you in essence are controlling the reality that some people are now living in and the majority of us have the wool over our eyes for like many many issues oh yeah well that's a book. I think his name was Tom Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, How to Think. 
Oh, I read that because of you. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Well, now you know where I'm headed. (laughs) Siloed information in zones of, the comfortable zones of shared opinions. Sorry, I got excited. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you read it. (laughs) Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very succinct. And there's no wiggle room in what he points out there. It's like Snyder's book on tyranny. I don't know if you've read that. I also read that because of you. <laughs> you sent me a, a book list, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, there's, it's it's so interwoven with so many things. This show I've got coming up of of working, you know, working portraits. They're watermen. I was a little nervous about it in the beginning. I'm glad I've done this first installment because it's not everybody I've worked with. It's a way for me to say thanks. You know, you guys, you lead these almost invisible lives other than the fact that you're the enemy. You know, it's, uh, I get to kind of pay back in a way. I hope that they don't mind. I know a lot of them come and see my paintings of their boats going, God, I wish you'd cleaned it up. (laughs) You know, and I could hear it now. Do you have to paint all the wrinkles? (laughs) You know? And I do, because I believe all those wrinkles are like a map of, well, it's character, but it's it's like a map of their lives. It's every creek, every river, every cove. Um, It's, you know, I I kept, I went looking for quotes by Gilbert Byron, who wrote all these wonderful poems about the Chesapeake and Waterman. And uh, occasionally I would bump up against something he'd written. Wasn't quite what I was looking for. Um, but you get you look at these eyes and you see these deltas coming out of around their eyes. People call them crow's feet, but uh, I think they're maps of their lives. Have you ever done a self-portrait? Yeah, but they're pretty depressing. So I did that like forty years ago, <laughs> back when I was really into studying sword fighting in the Japanese. And yeah, no, I. Why is it depressing? Oh, well, picture picture drawing yourself in a straitjacket looking at a blade. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. The dichotomy is there, you know. Mm. No, I, uh, or one where I'm really angry, which was pretty common back then, mm. and, and at times still is. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I'm more interested in painting the people who've made uh, huge contributions to what I do. And want to repay that contribution the time and the years some of these guys some of them have passed away and i had to go back and look through color slides to find pictures of them to paint because they were there they were and still are a big part of my life Uh, so this show coming up in june um, will be a lot of these watermen Mm. from tangier island all the way up to here i've had i've been having like a growing appreciation for people within that world. Uh, I've had some farmers on recently. When we went to New Mexico, we went up into southern Colorado. We went to a ranch and it, it's a working bison and cattle ranch. And I was fortunate enough to get to talk to a chef there who I'm writing about, which we chatted a little bit about because uh, it's been an interesting experience. But it's to your comment of like, how does the food end up on your plate? And I think maybe, maybe I'm off on this, but probably in like like the post-World Wars year, we had our blinders on to a lot of things um, and had this sort of like 
happy view of the American family and, you know, American dream type of mentality. Oh, look at what we survived. Yeah. Between World War One and Spanish flu and then the onset of World War Two. Yeah. Yeah. That that's a lot of stuff to kind of just look at the world and go, I like it here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I'm not um I'm not passing judgment on it necessarily. But I think just with like how much information is out there, we we're now hopefully becoming more aware of of the producers and the makers um, and the, the lives that they live that are actually quite difficult and they work very hard and they keep us all afloat. I think you're starting to see more restaurants specifically going to individual farmers, livestock people, um, commercial fishermen, aquaculture people, because in that instance, you now know who made your food. Mm. You're not getting it through Cisco. You're not getting it through all this frozen food. You see their trucks out, even though Cisco right now is on strike. Uh, the White House isn't getting their food. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. Better start growing a victory garden. <laughs> you know? it's, it's, it is a movement. Um, it's not a movement that's going to totally alter the way that we perceive buying food, but there are a lot of people who choose now to go to specific places to buy their food. And it's because there aren't that many hands between the food and them buying it. Mm. Um, and you're right, the 50s, I mean, kind of look at the commercials that came out of there. You know, it's, it's and it's that Judeo-Christian tradition again mm. of the earth is here for us to use. Um, and... You know, I, I remember being in Boulder. I went to college from 1969 to 1973 when Earth First made its debut on the, on the stage in colleges. The first truly ecological environmentalist a activist group specifically going to colleges. And I went to a lot of meetings and it was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> this is in the, at that time period I mentioned and people are just starting to realize just how much we've been crapping in this place and, and doing what we've been doing. Um, I have a seven-year-old grandson who told me the other day just how many species of things that we're losing a day. Um, he's seven years old. He wants to go to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> he does, you know. And he, he reads books about Mars. He knows, that, I mean, there's so many books about what, what society would be on Mars versus what it is here. How does the environment impact what your society would be there? Because that environment will kill you if you're not careful. Here, we got kind of a, unless you're just purposely going out and sticking your foot in a white shark's mouth, you know, um, we have a little bit of bumper room between that, that type of instant death. Okay, interesting point there. Because I, in some ways, if you really want to get... <laughs> You go down the rabbit hole with this stuff. It's like we're running from our death. And I was I think about I think about the quote in the Bible all the time, which I'm gonna busher, but it's what you're referring to. There's a specific line in there about man having to conquer nature or holding dominion over nature. Yeah. Which seems to be very unfaithful because it's like, well, are are you are you afraid of death then? Like what it's, it's but strange look where to that me. tradition came from. Tell me. The Middle East. 
Oh, of course, yes. The harshest environments in the world. You have to have dominion over it to survive, even in your own little oasis or in your own little village. You know, it's, it's, again, inextricably interwoven with where they live and where the the land is and how does it influence your opinion and and what you do. Mm. You don't eat pork because it spoils. You don't have refrigeration. You don't eat shrimp or shellfish Shellfish, because it spoils. You know, so to protect it, God will kill you if you eat that stuff. Okay, I'm not going to eat it, you know. Um, So... It's an interesting argument, um, this race to our death, like lemmings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like to think we're smarter than that, but currently I just, I see the rise of stupidity in the mass. It's like Adolf Hitler said, groups of people larger than five are stupid and you can make them do whatever you want. Wow. Yeah. Not one of my favorite people, not ever going to ever be a mentor philosophically or anything, but he knew groups of people. And he did all that without Twitter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He appealed to the anger and the frustration. Does that sound familiar? Oh, he's one of us, man. He's he's just as angry as I am, even though he's part of the Uh .01%. He's playing you. It's, I'm thinking back to... Um, yeah, we have to keep... <laughs> no, no, I mean... No. Nathaniel Hawthorne had this thing called the iron thread. In the stories, there is an iron thread. And you can go off on your jazz conversations and your tangents and everything and get lost. But if you remember the iron thread, then all of those tangents become valuable because they're part of it. But if you don't come back... <laughs> Well, I'm thinking of <clears throat> of how to think the book. How to we what? Were, uh, how to think, which we were referencing earlier, isn't that what it's called? Uh, how uh, to think? Oh yeah, yeah how yeah. to think. Yeah. Um, and he very much so, I think, is against being like very dogmatic uh, or having sort of like an extremist belief in the thing that you believe in is the absolute truth. And and. Since reading, I think I was attempting to be that way already. Like I've, you know, we mentioned this last time, but I came out of like my teen years in college, just like very set on like what I knew was right, which I think probably most people do. Um, and so, more and more, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm seeing how people get to a certain mindset. I can still judge it harshly, but I'm making a connection to. Just these past couple of weeks, I've been teaching the Cold War to high school students. You've been teaching Cold War? Yeah. Whew. Which is... Uh, Probably a totally unknown concept. To <laughs> yeah. Them. Yeah, because we don't really teach history. Which is was super hot uh, for a lot of places. So I'm teaching it from the perspective of the Asian countries. So we were in Vietnam. Uh, we were talking about Laos and we were talking about Cambodia. And if you look at the Cambodian genocide one of the worst atrocities in human history. But you take a country that had been colonized by France that then had the ever-loving shit bombed out of it by Nixon and you're surprised that people turn to an extreme form of communism? Oh, yeah. And, yeah, to me it's like... Have you ever studied communism? 
Yeah. Yeah, I have too. I spent a lot of time. I did not like the war in Vietnam, and I was in college, and I was against it, and my father was a full bird colonel in the Air Force, um, and he was getting his Ph.D. in cultural geography from the University of Colorado, and he came out and while he was doing his oral exams for his doctorate, and we talked. We had a lot of very long walks and talks about why I didn't like the war. He said, well, I understand that, and I respect your sincerity and your belief in it, because this is that age group you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm right. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's that great song by The Doors, too. I want the world and I want it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so eventually he said, look, if you get drafted, I'll go in your place. And I said, no, you won't. He goes, well, you don't like this war. I said, yeah, but I'm an American. It entitles me to not like this war. I, I will go. I'm not letting you do that. And he goes, all right, so then plan B is, and I said, what's that? He goes, study the Russians mm. because these are the people that you will be photographed with. These are the people that your record will be with, which might have been a little bit paranoid at the time. But it shook me up enough to where I started studying Russian history. And all of this shit with Putin and Ukraine, it's just like Peter the Great or the Alexanders, Ivan the Terrible, um, you know. So it's, uh, it's, again, there is anybody that believes one particular thing without any room for other things, they're a lost soul. But they're not lost. They have that lodestone. They have that rock that they can cling to. You know? And, and that's, there's a certain admiration for that commitment, however detrimental and destructive it is to the overall society. Uh, it's, thank God we live in America. Yeah, and yeah. with what you just said, when I was in high school, they said, you need to learn history because otherwise you're doomed to repeat it if you're ignorant of it. Oh, yeah. Well, it seems like we're doomed to repeat it anyway. Like, it just keeps repeating. Doesn't it? <laughs> right? the, yeah. Nobody's learning from this, you know? I, it, it's like, I wish they would put stocks back on the steps of the Capitol building mm-hmm. so when these guys come <laughs> out, we could clap them in there and then throw cabbages and oranges and tomatoes at them going, you're a jerk. How dare you say that? This is now what happens when you are irresponsible? But responsibility, nobody takes responsibility for their actions anymore. Mm. And you go to those websites where they still put 50 gallons a day on it. I just, they don't take responsibility for it. Christ, if I was a member of a group that refused to change its mantras, its dogma, I'd be pissed, mm. especially if I'm paying money. You know, you're supposed to be. I'd always thought, as a species, we're supposed to be evolving to something better. You'd hope, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you'd hope. And it seems, God, it's like the Russians in their economic policies. Two step forwards, one step back. NEP, 1921 on. It's, it's like, except we're now taking a half step forward and falling back. It's, it's frustrating It's disappointing, and at my age, it's almost depressing, Mm. which is why I probably spend a lot more time writing and photographing. And when I'm on the water, you know, yeah, I'm participating in part of an issue, but God damn it, it's a beautiful planet. Mm. We walk our dog three, four times a day around the block. 
and just watching it through spring that many times a day, just, I mean, this is an amazing place. And without us here, look what happened in COVID. Mm. Deer came out of the mountains around Tokyo and walked around in the streets. And the water in Venice got clear enough to where you could see the dolphins swimming in the canals. It just, the air in Beijing got clear enough where people could walk around without masks on. How long was that that we were in lockdown? And Mother Earth bounced back so freaking quick. You can't see it because it's behind you, but as soon as you said that, it just started pouring. Oh, oh yeah. That's, I hope your windows are up. That's strange. Uh, yeah, they are. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's really pouring. I, you know why we need this? To wash all that damn pollen off of cars and mm. trucks. My God, it's been so thick. That's a whole other thing that we saw this year that I've never seen. And we've lived in this house almost 20 years. We were watching wind blow clouds of pollen out of the pine trees. And you can go online and like go to North Carolina and say, uh, and just Google wind and pollen. And it looks like they're on fire. It's just, just clouds of just pollen. It's not smoke. I've never seen that here. Mm. Things are, I mean, during COVID, we had forsythia blooming in January. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the world was doing something interesting because we kind of stepped out of it and stayed home for a while. Mm. And we didn't learn a goddamn thing about <laughs> yeah, it. We learned not. nothing. <laughs> you know, as fast as we can do some things, we haven't done anything. We that love to see closer. how hot the iron is, right, Ro? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's not going to burn me. <laughs> Don't touch that. <laughs> I'm going to go sideways here, but I'm going to sure. connect it back. We touched on this a little bit in Elements last time, but uh, we were talking about death before, which is something I've been thinking about a lot. Um since we, we talked a little last time, but since my partner's father passed, most of us, our, our memory has survived uh, for as long as whomever survives us carries it on and tells our stories. If you're, if you're an artist and a producer, you, you live on through... Yeah, you leave a skid mark far longer than most people do. Yeah, you, yeah. You, there's a tattoo there. Um, and I, again, I'm always thinking about Bourdain. I, I always go back and I just watch these old interviews with him. Uh, and, and it's interesting now seeing people just like interpret his life through his work. But he's someone that was a producer and has such a, a breadth of, of work to pull from. Again, working with multiple mediums, there's a lot that one day you are going to leave behind. Yeah. Think about that a lot. Oh, how does that make you feel? That it, I feel sorry for the person that's got to come along behind me and clean it all up and try to put it together. <laughs> Do I have the time at my age now to try to put it in some kind of order so that uh, people are going to... Let's, we talked about this a lot earlier in the conversation to, mm-hmm. today. As much as you package and clean up for what gets left when you move on, they're still going to think whatever the hell they want to think. Which almost just negates the argument of, well, cleaning it up and you know, putting it in some type of chronological order because they're still going to think whatever they want. Uh, and there are times when I, I worry about it, 
which is probably driving me more and more to painting with smaller and smaller brushes and more and more detailed, you know, mm. like the wrinkle on a face has got a very dark line in it, but it comes from dark to light out, you know, so it's not just a dark line. It's, it's, there's space in there. There's light bouncing back and forth and this minuscule little line on some man's face. I did at Carla's inception go through the flat files and destroyed a whole lot of artwork. What do you mean? Well, she said, as prolific as you are, and as the, there has to be a large amount of work in your flat files that is just not as good as the best of what you were doing at that time. Mm. You should get rid of it. <laughs> because people are going to go through that and they're going to start to find all oh, that pair of underwear that had a hole in it type of thing. And so I went through all this, all these artwork, and it was hard on Phyllis, very hard on her. I mean, I, can't, I am not, I cannot do what I'm doing without her. We're, I'll show you this portrait I'm working on today. Oh, but we talk about it. We talk about everything that I paint let alone the opportunity that she gave me and and continued and still does yeah. to do what I'm doing, to create this morass of photographs and writing. I mean, I have a whole bin full of notes I've taken on oysters, oyster politics. It just fascinates the hell out of me. If you could find an intern with the patients who really was interested in the subject, there's the history of oystering in Chesapeake from 1995 till now or for whenever I quit. I started dating all the pages of notes from conversations, but that's just one small part. I, I write about all the pieces that I exhibit for Carla so that if people can now, they stand in front of the painting and they can put their cell phone up and read the, the barcode and they can get the whole text on their phone about what that painting is, which is kind of cool. Mm. <laughs> you know, for me, I'm, I'm about the biggest Luddite you could ever come across. I'm just, I don't, my phone, that's right there. It's a flip phone. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody sent me a picture this morning. He lives right on the bay in Oxford and he goes, zoom in on the lower left-hand corner. Well, on my phone, it says zoom left, zoom right. <laughs> right over this eagle that's snagging this fish and the water. And I wrote back and I said, I see something yellow in the bottom. It's either a goldfinch or it's a flower. <laughs> He's just laughing. It's, it is a huge body of work. And I would really like to do a book sometime with, oh, I'd like Pete Lesher to write the foreword in it. I'd like Tom Horton to write a commentary for it. Um, but Jesus Christ, I've done so many freaking paintings and drawings. Just what do you do? You know, where do you draw the line? Uh, so I really don't know about legacy. There's a book Carla gave me years ago called The Artist's Studio, I think. And it's written by the wives of artists. And oh. the artists have passed on. And they've either left a horrible mess for their wives or they were organized with their wives, or their wives, who are also artists, are organized enough to take care of the legacy. Okay. Uh, that That's fascinating to me because I had this conversation. I mentioned a gentleman to you over email, but his name is Ron Whitehead, and he's he's the outlaw poet. He was friends right. with Hunter S. Thompson. He's, he's in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And I talked to him about how it often seems like really 
almost sexy and cool to be in the orbit of the artist and the producer. Um, I'm, you're okay with me swearing, I think, but like, oh god, I yeah. Think a lot of times, like that person can be a real motherfucker. Like, oh it's, god, yeah. You don't have to be a good person to make good artwork or write good stories or write good poetry. Period. And a lot of people think that you can, you can be, you have to be. Oh, fuck no. <laughs> you know, I, 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 shunning is a is a very popular sport for me. Mm. I, I think in my own very small way, I'll get comments like. Oh, you've been to these places, or you've traveled. You get to do all these exciting things, and a hundred percent, I'm. I balance feeling very fortunate uh, that I've created a life in, that, in some senses, is, is like the life of my dreams. But I am a ball of anxiety. Like what you don't see is what's happening inside my skull. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and luckily, I have a very patient partner who, who sort of understands that. Um, but yeah, that that that's how long has she been your partner? Three and a half years. Ah, good for her. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, if see Phyllis is my soulmate. Mm. That's what you need. That's and beautiful. She's your soulmate. You're a very lucky man. Yeah, but that sounds. Uh, I'd love to, to to check that book out. That sounds really interesting. Oh yeah, I'll I'll make I'll. I'll get the title and author for you when we're finished here. Mm. Yeah. But I never looked at that book for 11 years. It, it sat on my bookshelf, you know, and I finally, something went off in the back of my head about legacy. Uh, need to set up a trust for all of the paintings so the kids don't pay the dues, of, you know, taxable properties being left to them. Uh, there's, it's, it's such a sticky freaking mess. Wait a second. Would... Do they take everything you've created and like whatever the value of that is? That becomes an estate that can be no. taxed. Oh yeah. This Even if it's not like for this, sale. This country shits on artists, and it always has. Look at Europe, okay. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Let's say I'm 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 a French artiste, and <laughs> I sell a painting, and it gets resold. I'm entitled to a percentage of that resale. In this country, my we're talking about auctioning people auctioning off my artwork. If that was in Europe, I'd get a percentage of that resale. Because it's it's a cultural thing, not in this country. I know that in I we mentioned or I mentioned this last time, but I grew up going to punk shows and I did one tour with a band and we would meet bands that came from Canada. And these are just 20-year-old punks in a van or rented a U-Haul to pull their gear. But everyone got a stipend or everyone in a band would get a stipend to go touring and to cover some of the expenses if you're from, from Canada. And yeah. We were blown away by that because we were eating spaghetti and sleeping on people's floors. <laughs> and we were like, that's incredible. Yeah, well, you know, but look at how we were founded. Mm. You know, yes, the Puritans came seeking religious freedom. Okay, and then look what they did with it. But who paid for it, and how did they pay to get there? And was that a big part of the contract? Oh yeah, it was a huge part of the contract. John Smith came here with with the promise that he would send back three golden arrows a year when he found gold on the Chesapeake. Good freaking luck for that. You know, it ended up being board, boards for, for lumber and it ended up being tobacco. But money, you know, and I think I'd mentioned this in the last time we talked about this the revolution. 
Washington is mm. freezing to death at Valley Forge. The order goes out, we need axes to fell trees to make cabins and to burn wood to stay warm with. And they went to a lot of people, a lot of forges, blacksmiths, who kept the money for the steel and they just sent back iron axes, which just were so soft on frozen trees. We're fighting for our freaking independence and we can't give these guys the right tools. It's like Vietnam, guys sitting, hiding behind trees and stuff, cleaning out their M16s with toothbrushes mm. in the middle of a freaking firefight. Yeah, you know. But see what we're doing? We are quoting events and people from 50, 100, 150 years ago. That, does it make you feel strange at all that in 100 years, somebody might be sitting in their living room and have and they'll have your painting up. Yeah. It's trippy to me. <laughs> oh, I, no, it, it, it is. Um, I'd almost like for every piece that ever goes out there to have a text with it so that in 100 years, the context of that painting is still um, tangible. Mm. And the history, because in 100 years, it will be history. Um, that's a problem we have right now. We're, we are... Probably why we don't even teach history in many of the schools anymore. Every day is living history. You're seeing it. It's not like the war at six o'clock during Vietnam. They've had all day to digest it, package it, put it together. Now you turn on CNN in the morning and you're watching this stuff change minute by minute by minute. How do you keep up with that? Mm. Fortunately, we had a president like Trump where the book industry just exploded <laughs> about history. You know. In in remembering people, I used to do uh, traditionally in schools when you when you make a lesson plan you do like a, you do a do now and it's people call it bell to bell instruction. Kids come in right away and they start working. I used to give kids in U.S. history class a quote and it was from a book called The Strange Career of Jim Crow. And ah, oh God, the author's C. Van Woodward or something like that. It's something. I don't know. Just Google the strange career of Jim Crow. And there was a quote from Lincoln, like the great emancipator. And it said that there are differences between the white and black races. And insofar as there are differences, the white race is the one that will will or must dominate. I'm that's, you know, You're paraphrasing, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. Well, I know. I know he said that. And so I would just give that to kids and I would say nothing. And I would just say, do with you, do what you will with that. React to yeah, it, right? And some kids would be like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. And yeah, so I don't know. Maybe I have no grand uh, statement about that, but I think it just it goes back to like the expedience of politics. Hmm. You ever see the movie Lincoln when when they they went oh, yeah, through all of those? I mean, there were a lot of very corrupt, <laughs> dangerous people. Mm -hmm. Morally bankrupt people in our government. I mean, it's this what we just survived. You don't it, say it ain't nothing. <laughs> you know? Really, I mean, it's it's we're supposed to be evolving, and we have been. God, it's just like a tiny little steps. You know, mm. I just finished watching the uh, the series The Expanse on. Uh, oh, I Lime. haven't seen it. Yeah, watch it. It's remarkable. Yeah, and I won't tell you anything else. Or read the books. Okay. But what we export once we get off this planet, 
it's it's not a lot of second chancers. Mm. You know, we bring with us the same garbage that the pilgrims brought with them to Massachusetts. It's 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 we're trying. We're trying. Yeah. <laughs> So my legacy, I don't know. I have three children. I don't know what the hell they're going to do with all these books. <laughs> yeah. Now, those are just books. But let alone, you know, I have binders of color slides and, and photographs in the studio of years and years. Um, and not to mention the hard drives that I've filled up with, with photographs. Uh, it's we, we, we talked about that last time and... Carla, I know you're listening right now. <laughs> I mean, that something has to come of all that. Um, or, is you know it what? worth it, though? Is it? It you know. Yeah, or maybe this maybe is nothing. Part of does. that Judeo-Christian tradition again of an afterlife for mm. not even necessarily for ourselves, but for the objects, the things that we create. And according to Buddha, our greatest sorrow is our attachment to things. Mm. You know. And I don't mind making things. I, I, I love where I live, and it makes me want to paint those things in as great a detail as possible because who am I to edit something out of a picture? Unless you piss me off, I will take you out of the picture. <laughs> I have done that. <laughs> You'll become chum in the photo. <laughs> yeah, right. Or I'll give you a sex change because <laughs> I need the body in the picture, but it won't be you. <laughs> can, you um, can you tell me about... Uh, the machine stops the, the story no. that you're illustrating. God. E.M. Forster wrote this story in 1909. And I think the first time it came out was in the 40s after World War II. It's, it's about 40-something pages, so I, I don't know if that fits the short story category or not. But it's about a very dystopian story about human beings living under the surface of the earth um, because of a certain number of wars and warring philosophies eventually they have lived under the earth for generations and generations and they believe that the air is so cold on the on the surface that you can't breathe without respirators and the surface is a totally destroyed picture of World War One landscape mm. okay well <clears throat> Interwoven in all of this, everybody lives in a, in a hex. Each person has a hexagonal room, which will give you everything you need, literally. The, our machines so far that we have created enable us to go out and get things, okay? But we're starting to see it now with Amazon and the like. You don't have to leave your house. And because of COVID, you can have groceries delivered mm -hmm. to you, okay? Um, so... In this story, and you gotta, this is a remarkably prescient story. This, this is so far ahead of itself. These people don't want to go up on the surface anymore. Some intellectuals do because they just want to go around and exploring, and they have odd little cars that they can do this in. Um, and they have airships, which is one of the weirdest things that, that survived, is you can go up these air shafts, to get to the surface, to get to this tower, to get to an airship. And the towers are called vomitoriums. Mm. Now, that's an old Latin word for an entrance and an exit, egresses for amphitheaters, back in the Roman and the Greek eras. So the implication was you could leave and you could come back through these things. But there was a war fought and 
because of this war, if you continued to believe in this philosophy, the machine and the people that lived underground, you were rendered homeless and forced to live on the surface. And I did this drawing of one of these vomitoriums. It, it, it looks like part of a lobster with the articulated carapaces and everything. There's bones all around the bottom of it, human bones. Um, so through the course of the story, there is a woman, Vashti is her name. She has a son, Kuno is his name. They were separated at birth. The machine separates them at birth. People just... The machine gives you everything you want. It separates your children from you. Have other people or other things raise your children. Well, he wants to go onto the surface. And he wants to get out. And he wants to, he's, he's definitely a dangerous person. He's a thinker. Mm. And it has so many wonderful passages in it about... Uh, just. I mean, it's just so target-rich for, for illustrations. And a lot of people have, have illustrated it, and uh, even from back in the, the teens and the 20s. Uh, supposedly, in E.M. Forster's personal notes, there are notes about this book, and we're trying to get access to these because we're busy trying to interpret what the hell he's written here in a way that they can become an image. So in these rooms, they have... They have knobs for showers and beds and doctors. And if you say, I'm feeling ill, out of the roof comes this huge machine that, that takes your temperature and, and, and diagnoses what it is. And, and you know, it's, it's think about our technology today mm -hmm. in, in these ERs and everything. Um, if you want to communicate to somebody and don't want to go anywhere, well, you have this dish that through the manipulation of a few buttons, it starts to glow. And now you can talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. Think about this. This is the internet. This is iPads. This is this is like your cell phone and doing Facebook, face page. Um, and if you wanted to do a lecture to, for, for people, they can all tune in. You don't have to leave your room. We get so weak in this story that she goes to visit her son and somebody in line, gotta backstep a little bit. In order to understand what the machine can do for you, there's a manual. As with all classic human perversions of things, the more you depend upon this machine, the more you depend upon the book. And the book becomes, imagine, like a Bible. It has everything in it that you need to understand the machine and get what you want delivered to you. Mm. And there are passages where people are touching it to their forehead three times and kissing it with their lips, and it's like, wow, this is, this is pretty creepy stuff. Very dystopian. And it doesn't end well. I mean, I'm not going to tell you much more than that. But it is remarkably replete with instances for, for drawings. So the book will be a letterpress. So it will be... Um, I'm working with Jim Desette from... He worked with Washington College for years. I did Heart of Darkness with him. Really? Oh, yeah. You, you illustrated it? Yeah. No I never way. read that in high school. I never read that in college. These guys come to me and said, look, we've used your work in some other books, letterpress books. Would you consider doing Heart of Darkness? I said, oh, hell yes. And I read it for the very first time. So I did not have any professor's baggage, you know, any editor's baggage or anything. And it was fascinating. The only baggage I had was Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. But so, I, yeah, I'll, I'll show you that in a bit. That it actually won a, um, God, 
It's an award for uh, letterpress books. Um, it'll come to me. Uh, Saul Bellows, I think, was the name of the of the organization, the Bellow. Sounds familiar. Um, but yeah, we uh, and you can't find a copy now. I was just gonna say they're all gone. So they do like one printing or yeah. one press, and yeah, it was five hundred dollars for the for the normal version, and then the the one that came in a slipcase with an, a limited edition series of prints from the drawings. That that was way out there, but they're all gone. Harvard's got one for its rare books collection, and so they came to me and asked me if I would do this story, which I'd never heard of, and he sent me a, a manuscript in the mail, and uh, I just started. <laughs> The shit that just spins out of our heads when Jim and I sit down. It's like, I have so many questions. What kind of... So they're boarding the airship, all right? If you dropped something in your room, the floor would raise it up to you. So you didn't have to bend over to pick it up. So you ever see the movie, um, oh, God. It's about the little trash robot that lives on Earth and everybody else is off the planet living... Oh, Wally. Wally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, with the people in the chairs. Oh, yeah. Do you remember how fat they were and how totally weak they were and pasty-faced? You know, just, well, that's how we're imagining these people. Right. White, just pasty-faced. And if you needed to move around in your room, the chair moved around for you. I found these gun tracks on an old British, the first British armor, armor, um, ironclad. Uh, I'll remember the name of it in a second. Oh, HMS Warrior. Well, they have a cannon on the foredeck, and it has these tracks that it can be maneuvered around on to fire at any angle and everything. I thought, what the hell? And I put those tracks in the floor for this chair to follow around on. I just keep reaching back and forth for these things. <clears throat> She's boarding the airship to go see her son. She's really worried about him with this radical thinking about wanting to get up on the surface. And they're in line and they're not touching each other. They're scared that they don't touch to each other. They don't know how to really talk to each other other than when they're irritated because now they're in the room with somebody else and they've got to talk to them. Somebody drops the book on the gangplank to get to the airship and they don't know what to do. The guy doesn't know whether he has the muscle strength to bend over and pick up the damn book off. Mm. And people are going, come on, we're in a hurry. We have to get on the airship. So they walk all over the book to get to the airship. And I just, you know, picture this. As I'm describing this, I hope everybody else that hears this is just picturing these feet walking by on this gangplank, stepping on this book. It's And the book is like the Bible, you know, it's... I read it about 15 years ago. And I was surprised when you said that because it's a hard thing to find. So my friend Derek and I were, and this is not one of those books, but we were trying to read through, I think it's Hugo Winners, right? Every Oh, si- yeah. yeah. So I used we were, to read those all the time. So we were trying to read through from the first one to win the award up through the present. Wow. And after a while we stopped because... In a lot of stories, let me try to think of something specific. So this is not one of those, but I read uh, Ray Bradbury had a short story book. I think it's called The Martians. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And every story was like related to Mars somehow. Right. And Because we thought we would be going there soon. <laughs> yeah, I thought when my first son was born, I'd see he would go to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> that was 40-something years ago. <laughs> wow. But in, in a lot of those stories... 
everything would be so fantastic. And then there would be something as like, they would throw me off as simple as like a, a, a dial ringer phone, like oh, yeah. something that's so it's like some anachronism that's out of place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you said that's, that's how very I described well. myself for many yeah. years. I'm a used anachronism. <laughs> oh, I like that. But that I'd be was like, one of my self portraits. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, how could you have a man flying into space in a, in a self propelling suit and he's got a dial phone? Uh, right. <laughs> or, or he has dials. You know, God, you look at what Elon Musk has done. Uh-huh. I mean, it's all touch stuff. But you look at how we went to the moon, there were toggle switches with metal brackets on them to keep you from bumping them by accident. Yeah. That's yeah. why, so, so, but, but watch the expanse. Okay, so that's what I'm getting to. Some of those stories would have something that threw me off, uh, and you put that very well. But then you'd come across someone like Forrester, and you'd be like, how the hell did you predict this so yeah. accurately? How did it come to you? Oh, yeah. Well, look at Jules Verne. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these are people that see far bigger than we do. Not necessarily into the future but just far bigger than we do. They are able to assimilate so many little things that all of a sudden, like a watermelon seed, there's this idea about this screen that you can talk to each other with. Uh, I think we talked about it last time, being sort of tuned into the same frequency as someone else. And there there are people that are tuned into a different frequency. Oh, yeah. Thank God they're the ones that are looking ahead. They're also the ones that are saying, we got to get better at what we're doing right now. Because yeah. I can see what's coming, and it's not good. So it's you like you, these guys that I paint. Hmm. You know, they're they're busy making a living, and they're trying to do it within a certain set of rules and laws and whatnot that kind of guarantee a sustainability. Does it sustain them, or does it sustain the species? Hmm. Yeah. I wonder sometimes too. I was thinking. I think sometimes we we look at someone may look at your photos and think like, well, that's that's sort of the work you have to do if you live on the water, um, or if you have a certain skill set. And I wonder. That's that's an interesting point. But finish up. Uh, and I'm all over the place here. I know, but I'm going to connect back to sort of the psychology of the interviewer. I think sometimes. And I am an interviewer. We ask questions to somebody because we think we're going to learn something about ourselves. Um, and so that way, in, in that way, a lot of my guests are sort of my, my, my mentors and my psychologists. But I, 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 I find small talk horrifying. I am not, I'm a great employee in that I work hard, but I'm not a great employee in, in the fact that I'm like horrified truly terrified of, of the workplace. Like I just feel anxiety ridden in the sense that I'm like, my God, there's this world out there and we're stuck in here with fake lighting and whatever. And we're talking about the freaking Super Bowl or whatever on a Monday morning. But I wonder if, if, if some of the watermen have chosen that lifestyle or that they've chosen that work because they don't have to be in the cubicle or be in the break room talking about Bullshit under fluorescent lighting. To a man. Yeah. To a man, they've made that choice. They're their own their own boss. Mm-hmm. Their office space is their boat. 
you know, and and everything that happens to them is usually a direct result of something that they're doing. As a group, you've got the laws and, the, and all the regulations and all the limits and things, but <clears throat> God, no, that'd be like suicide for them. I, I, I don't see that. I know some watermen whose health finally forced them off the water. Um, I mean, their knees were bad, the carpal tunnel, their backs, um, shoulders. It's, it's, but you're outside. There's nobody in your shit while you're working, unless you're culling or you're accruing and, and you're not doing a good job. Unfortunately, I do a pretty good job. I haven't been given a lot of crap for things that I've culled, but I won't do what they do. Mm. I might, you know, and... There are some times when I'm painting going, God, you know, I really like what I'm doing right now, but I'd really like to have been born 70 years ago on this shore mm. in one of these towns so I could grow up in it and have even a more subliminal understanding about this. Uh, Alan Watts wrote a whole bunch of books about Zen Buddhism. Um, but if you read Daisette Suzuki about Zen, you're all of a sudden you're realizing that Alan's very good about it, and his descriptions are, are magical, but they're all superficial. Hmm. He's not really jumping off the cliff. Hmm. And Suzuki points out where, where the bottom of that cliff is and where you got to go. Um, so if I had been born 70 years ago, <clears throat> I would be doing this. I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be working on the water. But there are people like Bill Cummings, Tillman Island, born on Tillman Island, went to the Navy during World War II, and a and gifted natural artist. I mean, he drew all the pinups and everything in the Navy for everybody. And when he came back to Tillman Island, he became a waterman. But he was also a painter. And in his later years, he started to realize where he was was disappearing, and he started painting and drawing it. And he did a lot, a lot of paintings. I have a print of one of his paintings, and I have a small sketch of a skipjack that he did. I got to know him the last several years of his life, and he always would say to me, you're doing it right. Don't give it up. Just, just keep fighting it. I don't need any more confirmation, mm. you know, other than the fact that Phyllis thinks I'm still doing pretty good at it, too. <laughs> it was disappearing because of the rising water levels, you're saying? Oh, the way of life? This was just, no, no, Tillman, oh, well, oh, Tillman oh. is, it's the culture. Um, oh, I see. And now that I'm, I was a board member, but I just, there was three hours of travel time for board meetings. Mm. And I always tried, well, okay, if there's a board meeting, let's not do it at 10 in the morning. Let's do it at 2 in the afternoon because I want to oyster if I'm going down there. And then I'm going to fall asleep at the table while we're all talking at the board meeting because I'm so freaking tired, <laughs> covered in mud, you know, because I don't have a change of clothes in the truck. And then I just realized just travel time and the cost of gasoline right now. I just, I said, I can, I, I'm honored that you asked me, but I have to step out of being a board member. And I said, well... And I told him, I'll do all the artwork you want. You know, just reach out and ask for me, and, and I'll do all the artwork. And I, no charge. It's just part of being able to help to learn more about this business, 
to learn more about the, the people, the history of it. Um, so I'm, you know, I, whenever they need artwork, I, I do drawings for them, uh, pen and inks. And we're, we're making outdoor display panels for some of the gear that they have on their grounds now. And I've learned a whole lot of new stuff. And meeting up with Johnny Kinneman, who I'm doing this painting of right now, he's almost 85 years old now. He and his son have been building boats for years and years and years, over 300 boats, uh, work boats. And uh, I've taken enough photographs of them building boats to where I've seen from the very beginning an empty building to the boat going out the front door. Um, what a treat, you know. Again, there's a whole other legacy issue. <laughs> what am I going to do with that? Because this is a tiny little museum on Tillman. It's a, there is a real distinct value to tiny community museums. Mm because the people in the community trust that museum with their artifacts more than they do the bigger museums where their artifacts get swallowed up in the collection and maybe get trotted out once every five or six years. Um, and my son on Tangier for six years, uh, Phyllis and I would go down and, and visit with him, but he helped set up the museum on that island. What a treat. You want to talk about kids and people owning the museum? They walk in because that came out of their closet or that firearm over there was their grandfather's in World War I. Tangible history. You know, these little museums. It's, it's not that way in the bigger museums, which is sad, or the little museums that want to be real big. Um, but a whole other aspect. I, I, I started out racing log canoes on this shore. And then I realized people had told me that they were work boats at one time. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, with all these sails and all, you know, as tender as they are. And I realized with more reading and talking with the old timers in the log canoe fleet, no, they didn't carry all this sail and they were the only work boats. And then they dumped all the sails when gasoline engines became affordable. And uh, the permutations kept changing, you know. All of a sudden, sawmill lumber was available on the eastern shore. You didn't have to make them out of logs anymore. You could make plank boats. Uh, just So I'm on Tillman Island watching this family build work boats. It's now plywood and fiberglass and two-by-fours, but there aren't many people starting out with wood anymore to make work boats. And they tell you the coolest stuff. Written on the wall are these three little formulas. They're just angles of certain parts of the boat. And that's all they have. Everything else is by rack of the eye. It's just fascinating watching a 47-foot work boat built without any plans. Mm. <laughs> it's so cool. You race with the family every summer, right? I, I race with, um, I've crewed with the North family for, for 29 years last year. I went to a, a brand, uh, she was built in 1932, but was totally refitted to what she was supposed, what she was when she was built. And because I'd raced on her sister ship, I went and tried to help them get set up and race, but that, that just turned into a, a very disagreeable summer for me. <laughs> I'm not going back. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, when I go back to canoes, I'll go back to the people that I know for all those years. And they have a sail, right? The, oh yeah, these are sailboats. Yeah. These are racing log canoes. They're called. Uh, been racing since well, the 1800s. It's interesting to me because honestly, I know nothing about it, 
and I'm in, in my head, I'm like, how do you, how do you beat someone? Like, how do you go faster in sailing? What's the, what's the strategy or the technique there? Well, I've raced for over 40 years. Wow. You know, I've gone to watch America's cup races and painted those and round the world races and, and I learned how to sail and race on, on a little lake right off of Lake Michigan. Um, you know, I didn't I was, was not born to it, but that's also where my fascination with water came, was living on Lake Michigan and White Lake. And then when you race in a one-design fleet, you know, you're looking at, you're reading about America's Cup boats and things, and that became something on my bucket list. And I ended up going to five cups and painting, sponsored by various syndicates and whatnot. I couldn't afford to do it myself, but I'd do a painting of their boat. We'd make a print. I'd give it to the syndicate. In exchange, I got airfare and room and board to Spain, New Zealand, twice. Wow. You know, it worked. <laughs> and then I shot the hell out of it. <laughs> you know, and being part of a photographer's pool at these events, you know, I'd only see them every four years. They all got used to me. It was an interesting process because my first cup in San Diego, nobody knew me and I did not have the big lenses and I did not have all the, the, the gear. And I kept getting shouldered out of the way on the rail for photographs. These guys with their big lenses. Talk about penis envy. Talk about mm. lens envy yeah. amongst all these <laughs> other photographers. I did cartoons of, of lens envy you know, with little espresso taps on them and wheels. And oh, oh, yeah. I cartooned these guys and they loved them. So I'm at the rail and I'm getting pushed out of the way. And, I'm, and, and there was just one German who just, just did not like me, I guess. And... Uh, he pushed me out of the way at the mark, and I thought, God damn it. And I stepped back, and I, and I was just getting ready to just kind of like bump into him and maybe have him go overboard during his shooting. And this little Japanese guy grabs him by the shirt and goes, uh-uh. <laughs> he said, think about it. And I said, okay. <laughs> and I thought about it. So I get up to the rail again, and this guy starts to push me out. And I said to him, how much do you get for a photograph? He goes, oh, well, I get $500. How much do you get? I said, oh, well, I get about three, $4,000 for a painting that I do. So I think I deserve a spot yeah. at the rail just like you do. And it stopped. From then on, it was like I had a place. And they would see me the next four years, and we'd all talk, and I'd cartoon them and everything. But, um, but God, go to the America's Cup, the holy grail of, of you know, yacht racing. It was cool. Where did that work end up? A lot of it's in my flat files. A lot of it's in private collections um, because there are a lot of people that I know because of racing boats that the America's Cup has the same draw. There is a gallery in Connecticut, uh, Genetian, Russell Genetian, probably one of the foremost maritime art galleries in this country and has a really good stable of artists. And he has been selling my America's Cup art for years. He was one of the first people that just said, stay with it. There's something there. Um, so that was, you know, and then through some of these corporations that I worked with that were sponsors for America's Cups, while we're sponsoring a, a around the world race, a BOC challenge, which means it's, it's not like the Whitbread. They go against the wind around the world, and they're all amateurs, except for the two or three people in the crew. Wait, am I understanding you correctly? They sail around the world? The whole yeah. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. 
it was around the world challenge it was called and so SAIC who did a lot of research and development for America's Cup boats also had a boat in this so they paid my airfare over to England I have friends I stayed with and I would go out and see trials and photograph and paint I have some coffee cups with my painting on them you know <laughs> goofy shit like that um, but, you know, and go back for the start of the race, which was nightmarish conditions. I mean, it was dark, glowering skies, driving rain, big waves, hard wind, and all these amateurs just, we're going, we're, we're taking off, we're racing, and we're out there on these rigid inflatables with, you know, saddle seats. Um, bouncing our brains out and pouring rain, trying to take pictures. And, and I got some really good pictures out of all this. And all these other guys are just like, shoot a picture and then just try to stay dry. And that's like, fuck me, and I'm here to take pictures. I'm going to endanger everything I got to get these shots. So I get back to where I was staying that night, and we're listening on, on the computer to everybody talking. And it was pretty funny because the decks were awash in puke and vomit. <laughs> These guys had no idea what they had signed on for. And when they left the Solent, they went east into the Bay of Biscay, which is notorious for its storms and whatnot, and didn't catch the trade winds to go. But it was, but connections, you know, it's just all connections. Would you get to talk to a lot of those guys that were actually, you know, competing? No. No, okay. No, I didn't follow them around, and nor did I go to their ports of call either. Mm. And in the Whitbread, where we had a boat from the Chesapeake called Chessie, I I forget how I got connected with them. Um, but I did uh, artwork for them and was allowed on the boat for sea trials. That was funny, because I'm in England for the start of the race, and Phyllis goes, you're on the front page of the Baltimore Sun. I said, really? She goes, yeah, but not by name. I said, oh, oh. <laughs> George Collins, who was the syndicate leader and owner and then the money. And, I mean, it's, it's all about him because he's from Gibson Island. He's Baltimore. So I walked into the compound. I said, hey, George, we're on the column. We're on the front page above the fold on the Baltimore Sun. He goes, really? He said, yeah. The caption read, famous artist Mark Costelli with unknown sailors on boat. <laughs> he goes, no. <laughs> I said, yep, nope. <laughs> But it's that must have been so exciting to yeah, participate in. But I married Phyllis, and we have three children. When I'm doing a lot of this, and she let me do these things. Wow! Yeah, and she's working full time. I mean, I went to Oman. I've been to India yeah. and Finland. I've been a lot of places, and and she just says, "Okay, <laughs> how lucky am I?" I don't know what it is about us, like the, the artists we like, we just want to squeeze every drop out of them. But like I'm, in my mind, as you're saying that, I'm like, man, this could be a book. Like you could write about those experiences. Yeah. I know. Well, now they're recorded. Think about that. You know, it's there's That's that, true. there's that legacy part that now I don't have to put it in a freaking book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then log canoes, that was, God. It was a private, it was a student of mine. He's a sculptor. I don't know, have you ever been to the bulkhead in Rock Hall and seen the hand tonger, the oyster hand tonger statue? I don't think so. Or the baseball player here in town? No. Yeah, when you go on Cross Street right off of 213, there's a baseball player next to the town hall. I must have then, yeah. yeah. I'm well, just not. Ken Hurley, he's just a, a brilliant sculptor. 
and his wife had, was taking some drawing classes from me, and they asked me if I would come to the house and do private lessons. And this is up in Ardmore, outside of Philly. And I said, yeah, sure. And we hit it off. I mean, talked all kinds of stuff. It was great. And I still, to this day, don't know why I was ever asked for drawing lessons because they're both incredibly competent artists. Huh. And Ken died just a few years ago. So <clears throat> through the course of one night, Ken says something about, we were crossing the bridge into St. Michael's and we saw these crazy sailboats coming up to the mark with these guys out on these boards. And I said, oh yeah, log canoes, racing log canoes. I said, I, I have a book with an article in it for you. And I brought it to him. And then Ken says, write this guy and find out where the boats are. Well, it was Roger Vaughn who's written a lot of very good biographies of, of famous famous people. Von Carrion, um, Ted Hood, um, The Mouth of the South. Who was that? That was TBS. Anyway, um, I wrote him a letter. He lives in Oxford. He gave my letter to Judge North. Judge North calls me totally out of the blue. I'm a total stranger. Tells me they're racing on the Chester River. And that was in 1990. And I haven't looked back since then. Because out of that started this evolution into work boats. Started this thing into the eastern shore. And we moved here in 95. Um, and through Ken and Pat, they'd let us use their house in Georgetown when we were still living up outside of Philadelphia. And it was, it was an escape to this remarkably rural county and their house, he, Ken always called it the dump, <clears throat> was not a dump, on this bluff overlooking the Sassafras River, you know, and it just through the silver beech trees and, and go down to the water. And, and I mean, it was, it was nice. And Pat said, you know, you might go to Rock Hall. It, it's kind of an acquired taste. <laughs> I have not looked back, you know. It's it's just been one connection after another, after another. Um, just kind of like tendrils expanding through this shore. And once, this is a remarkably generous group of people on this shore. And once you start, and they, you can thank them for the opportunity, but they'll say, oh, it's nothing. It's what you do with the opportunity. And that's where I think some of the respect starts to, you start to accumulate it. Because now you're taking advantage, you're doing something with what they gave you a chance to do. I was at Sweetbriar yesterday. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm writing about Jacqueline who does um, Sweetbriar, Sweetbriar and Daughter ice cream over there. Mm -hmm. And she gave us a tour of the farm and everything. But I had mentioned like, oh, tonight I'm going over to, um, to Zelda's to... to try to meet Jeff, who also doesn't do interviews. Um, and so I... Did he, did he do one? Kind of? Uh, uh, yeah, so I'm going to come back to that. Right. Um, but I guess the point I'm making is, as soon as I said Jeff, she's like, oh yeah, love him, tell him I said hi. And so to your point, the, the connection of people here is, uh, is really apparent, and, it, and it's cool to see. Um, I hope he's okay with this, but so Jeff to me is fascinating, uh, doesn't see himself that way and, and is a bit private. So initially I had said, I'd love to write about Zelda's for Edible Del Marva. He said, well, I don't do interviews and this is why. And I said, totally respect that. 
Because um, no good has ever come from one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he comes from the, the school of Marcus Deli. Um, and Edible was like, oh, we'd love one. And I said, well, you know, I'm not going to piss anyone off and just still write something. So I knew I'd be in town. And I said, hey, what about this? What if I don't do an interview with you, but I just write about the experience of being a patron of someone that's there? And he was like, okay. It's like, yeah. So uh, I knew I'd be getting in on Saturday. The Trojan horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I knew I'd be getting in on Saturday. And he said, oh, we're only open Thursday and Friday. And I should probably tell everyone, Zelda's is like, is a, is a bar here. It's a speakeasy in town. And he said, but I have a private event. Isn't it over the bookstore? It's overplayed against Sam. Yeah, that's where it is. Yeah. Yeah, right next door, basically. Yeah. So he said, I have a private party. I think he said to me, it's a wedding party, even though it turned out to be a birthday party. So he said, it's five to nine, you know, come towards the end. Like maybe people will be drunk enough where they won't care that you show up, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I show up, they're drunk enough. Uh, A couple of people did care that I was there. They're like, what are you doing here? But we quickly made friends with people. And yeah, I think I I got enough of a story out of it. And, you know. But it is the connections. Yeah. and, And, you know, if... I understand people being guarded, especially like going back to, you know, people controlling the narrative and the story that's put out. And he wants probably wanted to see them not an asshole that's going to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I guess the point in saying all that is there's there's so many interesting people doing cool things. And again, tuned into the same frequency. A lot of people around here are. Uh, and, and it's cool to see that. Yeah, I, there's, there's three different cultures here. Yeah, you've got farmers, and then their their expansion, and then you've got watermen and their expansion, and and then you've got Chestertown, which is a remarkable nexus of people. Reminds me of that story of the old hippies that are looking for a place to live, and they're they've made this tripod over this map with with their shoulders and their arms, and they are dangling a crystal. Uh, out of their hand, and it's kind of like the Ouija board. They're waiting for it to just kind of point to where they should be. Or if you ever read any Carlos Castaneda and how the Yaki way of knowledge, and you roll around in the room until you find that feng shui point where mm. that's the part of the room where you should be. So you organize your room around that part. But Chestertown is just, just remarkably kind of out-of-the-way nexus for a lot of amazing people here. A lot of amazing people. And the school districts are finally tumbling to the fact that all these people, a lot of them want to volunteer in the schools. And these are like PhDs and retired government people and foreign office people and foreign service people and um, just incredibly knowledgeable people that have retired here and would like to maybe exert some influence on little minds by Mm. reading to them or coming to school. And and I'm hoping like hell if you hear me out there, because I've been trying for years, I want to get into the public schools and volunteer. Oh, that'd be awesome. Especially in my grandchildren's classes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Mm. I've, I've taught drawing and painting for years and years, and I loved going into the public schools and doing it till 
fracturing of discipline and respect for teachers and, and uh, it's become commonplace in public school system. It's, it's hard. Both my parents were teachers. My grandparents were teachers. Um, but when you get to mess with little minds, simple drawings, you know, and, and all of a sudden you watch just like fire going across the yard. All this, this oh, wow, <laughs> that's what we're drawing. You know, I love that stuff. And, and it happens, you know, not as often as I'd like, but boy, you just get one kid that's going, oh, man, look at this. I get this. It's like, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> They're not sophisticated enough yet to go, yeah, this is, you know. I don't want to draw this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually, I think we should wrap. This is about okay. this is about a movie right now. This is about about almost two hours. Oh shit! <laughs> um, but I go back all the time, and I, I, I just like listen to interviews and watch interviews. The other day, I was making dinner. I'm like watching this old interview between Christopher Hitchens before he passed, talking to Richard Dawkins, and I don't know why I, I love this format, like long format. So. It would be cool to do this every couple of months um, because you're, all, I, you're always welcome. I feel like I can talk to you so for hours. There's so much shit that we can talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, can we plug your show in June? Yeah. Um, hold on. Cool. Yeah. It's um. It will be at the Masoni Gallery on Cross Street, and. Gallery hours are 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5, Cross Street Gallery on Sunday from noon to 3. The name of the show is Working Portraits slash Waterman Point One Exhibit. And it's going to be from May 5th, I think, till it's only up for three weeks. So, no, it's from the end of reception and artist talk will take place on the weekend of June 1st, Friday, June 3rd and 4th, and it'll be up for about three weeks. It's just a short show. Okay. I <clears throat> will hopefully be back during that time. No good. I think I was telling you it's like we do this birthday, Father's Day, first day of summer thing. Um, so I'll check it out. If you are, let me know. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the watermen aren't really keen about going upstairs to her main gallery. It's there's, it's this odd little separation, mm. uh, this cultural thing. I'm, we did a show years ago specifically uh, and in, specifically invited just the watermen to their own opening. And, th and they brought things like tomatoes stuffed with crab meat. I mean, they, they really did fine. And Carla had beer and, and uh, hors d'oeuvres and stuff. Uh, but I had to shoo them in off the freaking sidewalk <laughs> yeah. to get upstairs to get into the gallery. And once they were in there and they realized it was just going to be them and their wives and their kids and their friends, it was a hoot. I mean, it truly was. And I'd love to do it again. I'm not saying that'll happen with this show, but it's a ground floor gallery. It's on Cross Street. There's a good chance that should you come, there'll be some of these guys that are in these paintings that'll wow. be there. That would be awesome. It's just kind of fun to sit back and I don't want to talk about them by name. Right. Um, and I don't want their names on the paintings. Um, I get a lot of requests from photographers and other artists about, well, can you put me in touch with these watermen? And I say, you know, it's taken me 30 years to get where I'm at. And I'm just going to give it to you, and you don't know them or respect them. I, I'm not doing it. They should know that already, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Well, I'm doing this lecture this month down at St. Michael's for the Art League. There, um, it's a year on the water slideshow, 
And every time I've done that, people have said, can, can you let me have that one photograph of that one water? And it's like, oh, hell no. I got on the boat. I took that picture. You know, that's, that's mine. Yeah. You go get it yourself. Work it yourself. That way you'll get to understand more about this instead of just something to paint. Mm. All right. Well, I, uh, I'll hopefully be back in a couple months. And uh, maybe we'll do this You're again. always welcome here. We're back from know. Europe. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. Sure. Hey, Voyagers. That's a wrap on episode 270 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for hosting me at your house again. Uh, it's always a pleasure to sit down with him, and I hope that this is the second of many. Maybe we can do, you know, a quarterly episode or something like that and, and have four a year. I would really like that. Okay, I have a couple more episodes booked this week, and I've got travel on the horizon in the future, so things are exciting right now. I hope you're getting out into the world and making your own adventures and going on your own voyages. Summer's coming, warm weather's coming. It's a perfect time to do that. For now, I'm going to sign off and say, please, please, please take care of each other, and I will catch you all very, very soon.